If you are here for the first time with us, uh, know that one of the things, one of our prayers for us as a church is that week after week, we would be a place and a people where you find hope and restoration, that your hearts and souls would be continually revived uh, week after week, and you would just be refreshed in the Lord. You know, last week um, after our service, I got into a conversation about music and instruments, and I, I started to proceed and just kind of tell the group of people that I uh, my wife, uh, she put a, a group of all-star musicians together for our uh, wedding. Like it was like, I mean, they're like, re- like some of them, just some of our good friends, like they sell music. They have recording studios and just really, really good musicians just by the grace of God. And uh, Kelly put it together. And we started, to, as we were kind of going on with the conversation, I told them that uh, one of the instruments that we had at our wedding was a hammer dulcimer. And I'm guessing uh, that a vast majority of you were like me. And I had no clue what any of this, instru- I had no clue what this was. And I described it last week like a xylophone on steroids. It's like a stringed instrument, uh, like a xylophone, and like, played like a xylophone and a piano, kind of all mixed together, uh, that has the ability to make a lot of different sounds. Like it's truly a fascinating instrument. And when you watch them play, uh, like they're in rhythm, hitting all these different strings, and all of a sudden they press something, and those strings, they just make a totally different instrument. You're like, wait a second, what just happened? Okay, and it draws your attention and it stands out and the music is unique and it's enjoyable. And I bring this up because over the next two weeks, we're coming into parts of Joshua that we often look at like this hammer dulcimer. And we're like, okay, what is this? Uh, and like, what do I do with this? And I, and I, for, I know for at least for myself, there are parts of the Bible that we get to and we're not real sure how to handle it. So we're going to cover two and a half chapters today in Joshua. We'll be in the second half of chapter 10, and we're going to go all the way to chapter 12. And I am very aware that uh, very few verses that we're going to read today, we're going to think, okay, that's a really great memory verse. Just to prove my point, let's read the first seven verses of our text. You know, last, uh, last week we kind of looked at the exciting battle where Joshua prayed and the sun stood still. And then we ended it seeing Joshua putting the five kings in their grave. And this is where we end up in chapter 10, verse 29. Look what it says. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Makeda to Libna and fought against Libna. And the Lord gave it also and its kings into the hand of Israel. And he struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it. He left none remaining in it. And he did to its kings as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Libna to Lachish and laid siege to it and fought against it. And the Lord gave Lachish into the hand of Israel. And he captured on the second day and struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it as he had done to Libna. Then Horam, king of Gezer, came to help Lachish and Joshua struck him and his people until he left none remaining. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Lachish to Eglon and they laid siege to it and fought against it. And they captured it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword. And he devoted every person in it to destruction that day as, the, as he had done to Lachish. And this same idea keeps going through chapter 11 for about 30 more verses. Seeing Joshua and Israel have victory after victory through the southern land and then through the northern land. And then we get to chapter 12 and it gives somewhat of a repetitive summary. And we see that Joshua and Israel defeated 31 kings total. And we read it and we're like, okay, cool. Like they have victory after victory. They win battle after battle. And we get to texts like this, especially in the Old Testament. It's easy to think, well, like, what do we do with this? Like maybe you've gotten to the book of Leviticus in your Bible reading plan and thought, okay, these next few weeks aren't going to be so fun. But I want us to think of these 
like large sections of scripture, kind of like this hammer, hammer dulcimer. Yes, they're a little strange and maybe complex, and we're not really sure what to do with it at times, but if we don't learn to play it or how to study it, we'll never experience its beauty. And so as we think in line with these types of texts, we should think of them kind of like music. Like they're very rhythmic in nature. And then we get to something that seems to make a different noise, and it should draw our attention and think, hmm, like that's a bit unique. And so just like the beauty of music is in the beat and the rhythm, Scripture is the same way. Like we pay attention to the rhythm and the beat and the offbeats to see its beauty. And so today, no, we do not have a narrative or a story, but rather we've got like music to listen to. Like we've got rhythmic repetition that will teach us something incredible about the goodness and the kindness of God. And so just like in music, when we read notes on a page, the beauty is hard to see if you're not familiar with the notes. And so today we're going to make the notes of these two and a half chapters kind of come alive. Like we're going to play the hammer dulcimer today, so to speak. And maybe some of you are kind of excited to play a unique instrument of Scripture and learn how to study and engage these more repetitive texts in the Bible. But I also wouldn't be surprised if some of you really just don't care to learn how to engage these types of texts. Because you're just exhausted or weary, or struggling to press on. Maybe your faith, uh, maybe in your faith, or with a job, or school, or current life situation, or an academic exercise like this doesn't seem too appealing. And if that's you, I will happily say today that today is your day. Because no, I'm not going to read all the repetition, and today is not going to be super academic. And so rather than studying the notes academically, we're going to turn the notes into music, and we're going to have these notes really just kind of warm our souls. Because the music we're playing today is for those that need hope to endure, that are weary and tired in the battlefield. New City today is for the restless. Yes, there is a repetitive nature, but when we step back and listen to the beats and the offbeats to our music, we'll see as our main idea today that God faithfully goes to battle for his people to provide rest. So in our text, over the next, over these two and a half chapters, we see battle after battle won. That's our repetitive bit, uh, rhythm. It's the 31 kings we see defeated. That's the steady lead. It's like boom, 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 boom. And then all of a sudden, at the end of chapter 11, we see the beat all the way through. Boom, 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 boom. And at the very end, we get like a sudden ping. And then it stops. We get 31 steady beats, 31 steady victories, and then 31 battles won, and then one sudden, like total beautiful shift of notes at the very end. And New City, that one note at the very end, it stands out and it makes the music unique and beautiful. And so what's this unique and sudden beautiful sound? It's in chapter 11, verse 23. It says, so Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. 31 battles won. Boom, 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 boom. And then rest. And it's that beautiful ping. Like their promise was obtained. And as we look at the entire purpose of the book, like the purpose of this book uh, in Joshua, like we, we get help from our New Testament, specifically from Hebrews chapter 4, which we're going to look at a little bit today. We'll see that rest was the goal. Like I read a, a book earlier this year called Rest in War by uh, Pastor Ben Stewart. And one of the things that I appreciated about the book was that it pointed out much of what we see here in Joshua, that there is a wartime battle. Like there's a time to conquer and push back and defeat, but there is also a time to rest and delight. 
Like we see this running theme all throughout the Bible. Like God created the world in six days and then he rested on the seventh day. God commanded his people as part of the Mosaic law to rest and to Sabbath. It's part of the way in which God created us. Like God created us to work and to battle and also to rest and delight. And so today in our time, as we go through our text, yes, we will see battle after battle won, seeing God as a conquering God. But we'll also see that God's conquering and battling has a purpose. And the end goal is for rest. And so again, if you come in today and you're very aware of the battle, I want you to hear that God's desire for his people is to rest. Yes, there are battles that we're, we're called to fight, but church, there is rest to be obtained. Just like idleness and laziness are not in God's design for his people, so also restlessness is also not part of God's design for his people. Like there is a time to work and to labor and to battle, and there's also time to rest. But in order to battle and labor well, we must also rest well. So we have two points today. We're going to kind of split our main idea up in half. Number one, God faithfully goes to battle for his people. And number two, God provides rest for his people. And we're going to actually spend most of our time in this first point, seeing what it looks like to live life in the battlefield, because this is actually most of our text. But I want you to hang with me because that last note, it's coming. Like rest is coming. Again, we're not going to read every verse in these two and a half chapters. We're going to look more at the rhythm and the beats and the offbeats. You know, last week uh, we saw Joshua win the battle. And in the battle that God promised victory for, Joshua prayed and asked God to make the sun and the moon stand still. And God listened and God did it. And then when we pick up today, kind of like what we just read in the middle of chapter 10, uh, we see Joshua continue in battle. So chapter 10 is the southern conquest. Chapter 11 is the northern conquest. And then chapter 12 is the summary of all the battles. And in chapter 12, it reads kind of like someone taking attendance, if you go back and read it. But as I say that, I will also say the Lord struck me maybe the most this week with that chapter 12 roll call. And I'll point that out in the end, but, and we'll get to it. And so yes, it is a very battle-heavy two and a half chapters that will lead us to see, number one, God faithfully goes to battle for his people. Again, this will be most of our time today. And we'll see several things to hold on to in this one point that teach about life in the battlefield. And really this idea of God going to battle for his people, we have seen this over and over again in the first half of Joshua. Like This is nothing new here. God keeps doing it. And if we were to read the rest of chapter 10 that we, we kind of read earlier, we'd see that they fought against a bunch of kings, uh, Libna, Lachish, and then another king, king came in to help, and they beat them too, and then another did the same, and they also lost, and then Eglon, they beat them as well, and then verse 38, we see them beat the beer. And then starting down to verse 40 in chapter 10, look what it says. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country, and the Negev, and the lowland, and the slopes, and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea, as far as Gaza, and all the country of Goshen, as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all of these kings in their land at one time, because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, to the camp of Gilgal. Crazy names, but it's okay. And we read the end of chapter 10 and into chapter 11, it's like victory after victory. And again, we're like, okay, that's cool. And maybe we think, but that was then. I'm glad they won all their victories, but what does this have to do with me today? Because I don't know about you, but my life doesn't seem to work like that, like seeing victory after victory. Maybe you would, it seems like it feels like more like defeat after defeat. 
Or what is probably most likely the case is like a mixture of both, seeing both victory and defeat. Like school and work can feel this way. Some days are good, some not so good. Parenting can seem this way. It seems like we're making strides. And then other days, it seems like nothing is working. Or maybe friendships kind of seem all over the place. We could pick out so many different things and see that life is not always victory after victory. But what I want to point out here is that Joshua and Israel were finding victory where God promised victory. And as followers of Jesus, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but we don't have a promise that all of our days at work and school are just going to be awesome and enjoyable. Like, we don't have a promise that parenting will be easy and that relationships are going to be strife-free. That's not our promise. No, until Jesus comes back, we have a promise that actually suffering and hardship will happen. Like, it's beautiful. Like, it's, it's like, this is, like, this is inevitable in life. But the promise of victory that we do today have that we can correlate to Joshua's promise victory that I want us to focus on is that God is making us new and holy. And so get this, we both, like, yes, we are totally, instantly made new and holy because of Jesus at the cross, and he is also making us new and more holy. Like, it's both and. Like, this is the Christian life. We are both declared totally new, we are a totally new creation, while also, we're still a work in progress. And so Joshua's promise of victory was for a military conquest for a specific land, for a specific group of people to provide rest in a physical land. But we today, we don't have a promise like that. No, our promise is not for a physical land of rest. Like our promise is for our souls to be at rest in Jesus. Hebrews chapter 4 teaches us to read Joshua to see the promise of rest in the land that we're given to be our promise of rest in the new heavens, in the new earth. Like when all is said and done. Like when our journey is complete and we're finally and totally and completely new. And what we need to see today is that while we're on our way to our eternal home in heaven as a work in progress, there are battles that Jesus is fighting for us. Like God is fighting battles on our behalf and is with us to make us more like Jesus. God is fighting battles for us today to fight sin in our life and to overcome addictions, to grow in patience and to grow in our joy and to fight the lies of the enemy. And we could go on and on. Like we all every day have battles we're facing against our own flesh and we need to be transformed to be made more into the image of God. Like this is the big fancy word that we call sanctification. Again, our life is a work in progress that comes with battle after battle. And when we read about these battles being won, victory after victory, we must know and see that, yes, they read like there was no struggle in the battle, but we must see that they were fighting. They were fighting. They were absolutely not sitting on the beach, sipping Kool-Aid and enjoying life. No, they were struggling in the fight. They were putting in effort. They were fighting and laboring and sweating and preparing. Yes, they won every battle, and it reads like they just breezed through them. But anybody that knows military history knows that they had opposition coming at them. They had to actually draw their swords and shields, and they had to go into battle. In New City, this is so good for us to see, because when we get to see Jesus face-to-face in heaven, we'll look back on our life, and we'll see how God, our warrior king, came and fought all of our battles. And in the end, when we're with Jesus, it will read like victory after victory after victory. Yes, there may be some scrapes and cuts and bruises and really close calls and really painful moments along the way, but let's not be fooled. In the end, God wins every battle. 
And the, fighting that he, and the fight that he is fighting on our behalf is to make us into new creations, to make us more like Jesus, to make us whole and holy. Again, I don't know what battle you're facing today. Maybe it's a battle for purity or joy or contentment or patience or battle of self-control or maybe some sort of relationship restoration. And maybe it's all of the above and then some. You know, I don't know what it is, but whatever the battles are, God calls us to enter into the battle. Like we do not sit on the sidelines. We do not retreat. No, we enter in the battle. We draw our swords and shields and we fight. Yes, again, there may be many moments when it feels like we're losing. And it seems like we've been defeated. But listen to me. If you are in Christ and abiding in Jesus and in the battlefield, listen, you must know that the battle is not over. And that God is absolutely fighting for you. And in the end, when we're with Jesus in heaven, looking back at the battlefield of life, we will see a big W, seeing that in the end, we won the battle. Church, this is our promise. We win. And Satan will be defeated. Our enemy will be destroyed. And in the end, if we are in Christ, again, we win each and every battle. Like we will sit at the victory table with one another and with Jesus and we will celebrate and we will rejoice and we will feast and cheer in victory because the battle of peace, it will be won. The battle for joy, it will be won. The battle for full restoration, it will be finally realized. New City, we have a promise of victory and in the end, church, we win. And you know what we should expect every time a battle has been won in this life? There'll be another battle right around the corner. And you know what? In the end, it too will be won. It's like a rhythmic beat. The next beat, the next battle, it will come. New City, our life is full of battles and every battle prepares us for the next. Because as we just saw, Israel just swept through the southern territories, battle after battle. And then right after they get back, beginning of chapter 11, we see uh, Jabin, king of Hazor, gather several kings in the north and really just kind of from all over. Look what it says in verse 4. Chapter 11. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined the forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. It says a multitude of people, a great horde, a number like the sand that is the sea, with horses and chariots. Like they all joined forces and stayed together to fight against Israel. So Israel has won battle after battle, and now they quite possibly have their largest battle yet. And it shouldn't surprise us that the author paints a picture of a massive army. Like he's drawing our attention to the impossibility of the battle from our human eyes. And I think it's fair to say that Joshua and Israel were not exactly fearless. And they're standing there looking at armies and armies and horses and chariots, way more in number than Israel dared dream to ever have. And you know why I think they weren't so fearless? Because look what God said to Joshua. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. <laughs> like God had to say, do not fear. Don't be afraid of them. Which I think means Joshua is at least somewhat fearful. Like probably shaking in his boots just a little bit. And so I'm thankful for this because it reminds us of Joshua's humanness. And also our humanness when we face new battles. Yes, we may have overcome a lot and God has been faithful, but yet I don't know about you when those new battles come, doubt and fear can easily come with it. And why? Because we're human. And I can't help but notice that God did not shun Joshua. No, he patiently reminded him of his promise. 
And it reminds us today that in our battles, we will need to continually, day after day, re-up our trust in the Lord to re-remember that the Lord is faithful. And I know that re-remember, that's not a word. It's like a little redundant. Like I, 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 I know how this works. But is it this, like, isn't that how this often seems? We have to continually remember. Like we forget again, and then we need to re-remember. And look what God says right after he tells Joshua to not be afraid. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. For tomorrow at this time, I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So God gave them yet again another promise of victory. And let's not forget that they already had this promise. Like this wasn't a new promise. No, it was simply the same one. It was like a reminder, just like with a few more specific details for this one occasion added to it. So God, again, had to remind them again in their fear that his promise, it still stands. Even when it seems like what they're about to face, like this, it seems like it's not going to work. And listen, I don't care how bad your situation may be or how bleak things may look. Maybe it's with your struggle with self-control or struggle with a spouse or family member, whatever it is. Again, if we are in Christ, in the end, Jesus wins every battle, period. Jesus always wins. And we will have to continually re-remember this. Because listen, just like our battles come like a rhythmic beat, so are God's victories. You know what Joshua did with the promise of victory? He lived it out. He lived knowing he would be victorious. God's promise of victory moved him to action. Look what it says. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as Great Sidon and Misrephoth, Maim, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Joshua took that promise of victory and he lived it out. It did not move him to inaction and to sit on the sidelines. No, it moved him to take action and to enter the battle. And this same thing is true for us today. Again, we have a promise that God is transforming us. Like if we profess faith in Jesus, uh, no doubt the Holy Spirit is in us. And the Holy Spirit is absolutely changing us into a new creation. This is a promise. And then again, in the end, Jesus wins. Christian, there are some incredible, those are some incredible promises. And what do we do with these promises? They move us to take action and enter into the battlefield. This is what the Holy Spirit does. Our promise of victory moves us into the battle, not out of it. And so let's just play this out, just an everyday life example, just for my own life. Like you could take this and play it out in any struggle or battle. I, like I, personal, I personally often battle with patience, okay? In my defense, I like to say I'm just always ready to go, all the time. But nonetheless, I personally notice it the most as a dad. And honestly, y'all, I beat myself up over it a lot. It seems like one of those things I just keep falling short on. I, I've grown a ton in it a lot, but I, I'm often still impatient. You know, every, every morning I write down in my prayer journal, along with a few other things, God, make me a gentle and patient father. And y'all, if, if I didn't have a promise of victory in this, I would have thrown in the towel a long time ago because day after day and week after week and year after year, I still find myself falling short in some ways. Because I know as a promise that God is making me into a new creation, that God is absolutely transforming me, that God is making me into his image. I have a promise of victory that leads me to then stay in the battle and to keep fighting. 
Y'all, I have a promise that God is making me and every other dad who proclaims Jesus to be slowly, year after year, being made more into the image of God the Father, who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness to a thousand generations. Like, this is a promise of victory that we get to live into. And so does every other dad who walks with Jesus. And no, I will not ever be perfectly that image on this side of eternity. But I do have a promise that one day I will be able to exemplify perfect patience to all those around me at all times. And I also know that through the help of the Holy Spirit, I can access that patience right now at any time. I just need to re-remember to access it throughout my days. And as we continue to work through this story, still in this first point of life in the battlefield, seeing victory after victory, There is a verse in chapter 11 that I think reading it, I think it would catch our eye and honestly cause us to just scratch our heads. This is one of those notes in our song today that has a really strong offbeat. Honestly, like it's a bit jarring. It seems like it shouldn't be there and out of place, like a a missed note. But no, this is part of the music. And so instead of avoiding it and skirting past it and acting like it's not there, I think it's necessary to address it head on. And so we're just going to slow down here and we're going to really engage our minds for about six or seven minutes. And so I want you guys to put your thinking caps on and just inspect this strange offbeat, this jarring note. Look at chapter 11, verse 16 and 19, just a kind of idea of where we are. So Joshua took all the land that the hill country and the Negev and all the land, the Goshen and the lowland and the Arabah and the hill country of Israel and its lowland from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir as far as the Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. And there was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them in. They took them all in battle. So again, they go to war, they live in the promise of victory, they get their land. And just to note, we saw in verse 18, we see that it says, Joshua made war a long time. Like it was a long battle. It wasn't easy, seeing that some battles are won in a day and some take much longer. And we're going to come back to that. But then look at verse 20. This is our alarming offbeat. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts. They should come against Israel in battle. In order that they should be devoted to destruction. And should receive no mercy, but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses. So something I just want to point out and acknowledge that we have seen throughout Joshua is that this promise for this land to God's people is not because God wants to take this land for no reason from these kings and then just give it to his people. You know, and what many opponents to Christianity will say is that this sure does seem like mass genocide. And this was ordained by God. How could this be? This doesn't seem like a loving God. You know, in most commentaries you read on this will spend most of their time here addressing what seems like mass murder of people. And so we're going to address it, at least some. And I just want to take it a step further, and I just want to point out to the skeptic, hey, don't skirt past this verse we just read. Look what it says again. It was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts, that they should come against Israel in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. And so God hardened their hearts so that they should be devoted to destruction. And this is the part when Christians start to squirm because we don't, we don't know what to do with these verses. Like we quickly shut our Bibles and like think, nope, I didn't just read that, okay? 
Like, why would God harden their hearts for the purpose of them being devoted over to destruction? This is not the loving God that I know. And y'all, I want to take this just a step further and also remind us that this is not the only time we've seen God do this. In fact, this strange beat, it's all over the entire Bible. We first see this alarming beat back in Exodus, seeing that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And I want to try to be as clear as possible here. Because just like we saw with Pharaoh, who was an evil and ruthless leader, that Pharaoh first hardened his own heart. And then God also hardened his heart. So who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Well, both God and Pharaoh. It's both. But the reason God did it was to display his holiness against Pharaoh's evil. And the same is true here with all these kings in this battle. And listen to me, this is important. It is not as if God hardened the hearts of innocent kings. No, he hardened the hearts of people that already had hard and cold hearts. Like these kings were adamantly opposed, like Pharaoh was, to the God who created them. And the result of their opposition to God was a further hardening that would end in destruction. You know, as one commentator put it, just in a really direct way, when we say that this is not, a, this is not loving and kind God, he said, when we say that, he said, we arrogantly pride ourselves as being kinder than God, but only prove that we haven't a clue of what holiness is. So God's hardening the hearts of ruthless kings is a means to show that he is the only king and that holiness and worship of God is the only acceptable response. New City, God is perfectly holy and just and also kind and loving. These kings knew God. They heard what he did, but they rejected God and they tried to keep themselves as kings. Because God is holy, he is showing us that only he can be king. Just as we said a few weeks ago, God's extreme judgment points us to God's extreme holiness. In New City, we must see this as a warning to hearts that are hard and cold and opposed to God, even still today. Because the Bible is very clear, it does not end well for those who are opposed to God. In fact, destruction is their end. And when we step into the New Testament, this same beat continues. And in fact, this same beat continues way more pronounced. We see it more, not less. Because the Bible is clear, just one of our sins puts us in opposition to God. And all those that reject Jesus, all those with hard and cold hearts opposed to Jesus, it does not end well. The destruction is their end. New City, this is really bad news. Like this is that icky offbeat that we don't like. But the good news of the gospel, our incredible hope is that when we go in 100% with Jesus and totally put our faith in Jesus, we're no longer in opposition to God. No, placing faith in Jesus puts us 100% in God's favor, regardless of our past mistakes. This is grace. Like Jesus takes this icky offbeat and he makes it a beautiful melody. This is why Jesus is such a big deal. Like we desperately need Jesus. But again, if we don't believe in Jesus, the end is tragic. And when we read of God hardening the hearts of kings, New City, if it wasn't for Jesus in the cross and his death and resurrection, the same would be true for us. And y'all, this is grace. This is nothing but grace. That's good news. But guess what? It gets better. Like the music gets better because today, because of Jesus, God doesn't harden our hearts. No, he softens them. God doesn't make our hearts cold and hard. No, he changes them and transforms them and molds them into his image when we were Jesus. 
we see God sovereign over hard hearts of kings, it should encourage us to know that the same is true in the other direction. Church, Jesus can take our cold and lukewarm hearts and he can burn them hot for his glory. And we wake up in the morning and our affections for Jesus are just not really there. When we come to him anyways in submission and confession, he can take our cold, apathetic hearts and he can make them zealous. And we look at all these battles today, seeing God going to battle and to conquer enemy territory. New City, this should encourage us to know that God is doing the exact same thing with us. Except our battles today are not won or lost in a physical battlefield, but a spiritual one. It's a battle for our hearts. Like there are places in our lives and in our hearts that are still battling with the enemy. But church, because of the cross, we can know that, yes, we may be in the battle, but Jesus Christ has already taken over and he has already claimed victory. Jesus Christ goes into the battlefield of our hearts and conquers those cold spots and he can make them white hot for his glory. But you know what? As we read in our text today, some of those battles in our hearts might take a little bit longer than others. Maybe years. But church, let's not forget, he's battling, he's fighting, and he will win. Because in the the end, again, Jesus wins. And that, my friends, is our really long first point. Seeing the life in the battlefield. So hang with me for about seven or eight more minutes as we get into our second point here in a second. And y'all, this is that last beautiful note that completes the song. You know, as we said at the beginning, Jesus wants to win the battle of our hearts, but it's for the purpose of providing rest. Look what it says in chapter 11, verse 23. Again, so Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. And like we said at the beginning, this seems like a minor note, but it is a loud, different, beautiful note. And it screams, they made it. They inherited the land that God promised and the land had rest from war. Leading us to number two, God provides rest for his people. And the reason we can look at this and know that we're on the right track here with this rest theme is because this is what the New Testament writers point out to us. We know that the land had to be a place, was a a place of, of blessing and rest. And in many ways it was, but we also know that as the Bible continues, it wasn't fully that way because of their disobedience. It didn't stay a place of rest forever. Yes, the land was at rest, but their hearts and their souls, they were not. He gave them this land, but because of their disobedience, it did not last. But guess what? This promise of rest for us today, it still stands. We eventually see as the Bible plays out that there will be another day that we can still hold on to that will provide eternal rest. Look at Hebrews 4, 8 and 9. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would, there, uh, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Essentially saying God promised them this land, but the land did not give them lasting rest. And so this promise of rest, it still stands. And church, this is a both and promise, as we've already talked about. We will have a future eternal rest in heaven that we long for and we hope for. But do not miss this today. Like in Jesus, we have rest. God's people in Joshua were looking to the land to find rest, but it didn't last. Yes, the land gave them rest, but again, their hearts, they were still restless. New City, we don't find rest in land or circumstances or material possessions. No, we find rest in Jesus. 
Yes, God fought to provide rest for his people in this land for temporary rest, but what we cannot miss is that God went to the cross and he fought our sin at the cross, battling for our hearts and souls so that our hearts and souls can find eternal rest. New City, the battle for our rest, it was won at the cross. Our promise of victory looks back to the cross and it awaits the day ahead. Yes, we long for the day when we have eternal rest, where there will be eternal joy and gladness, where all of our tears will be wiped clean. But even today, we have access to that same rest. We find rest in Jesus. And when we're battling with restlessness as followers of Jesus, this should remind us that we are at war because in Jesus, we have rest. And restlessness, it's not from Jesus, it's from the enemy. It means that we're in the battle. Because a restless Christian is not resting in Jesus, but yet we still all get restless at times, which again reminds us we're at war. But the beauty of the gospel is that as we're fighting in our battles, yes, we're called into battle, but in the battle, there's rest. It's resting in Jesus. Like it's sitting at his table, it's coming to his word, it's delighting in him in prayer, it's trusting in his goodness. Yes, we're called to labor and fight, but it's a resting labor. It's a resting fighting. It's not an anxious toil, but it's a resting worship. Yes, we may get cuts and bruises and bleed, but we can rest knowing that Jesus is both the commander in the war and he is also our medic in the battlefield. New City, Jesus went to battle at the cross so that our hearts can be at rest. And as we end our time, I I can't help but think of those 31 battles as we see them written out one by one, battle after battle, king defeated after king defeated, and it kind of reads like a roll call, like taking attendance. But if you go back and read it, this seems like the chapter you should just skip over. But as, as I looked at it this week myself, I was just struck by the song that it wrote. Like it's a song, it's a rhythmic beat, battle after battle after battle, showing the faithfulness of God. They listed out each battle one to remember them. And y'all, that list, it just sings the faithfulness of God. You know how it struck me? Like it led me to personally write down battle after battle after battle in my own life where I've seen victory, seeing just the Lord's faithfulness over the past 20 years of me walking with Jesus. You know what it did for me personally? It led me to find rest in the battles ahead. And I can't think, but as we come to the Lord's table today, reflecting on the cross and the blood of Jesus, reflecting on his faithfulness at the cross, that we see both rest and war in perfection, just symbolized in a single ordinance. We see Jesus' blood shed at the cross and his body given, like that's war. Like Jesus went to war on our sin. While at the same time, that same cross, that same body given, that same blood shed, it symbolizes our eternal rest and our present day rest given to us at the cross. And when we look to the bloodshed at the cross and we see the battle won, we know it was won for our rest and delight to be found in Jesus. Church, let's pray. God, I don't know how people come in today. I don't know what what, what people are wrestling with. I don't know what battles are going on, but I, I know that there are battles in each of our lives. But God, we have a promise that you are laboring and that you are battling with us that you are for us, that you're not against us. 
God, we pray that if there's anyone in here that is yet to put their faith in Christ, that they would trust in Jesus today. They would say yes, and that they would find and taste and experience the true rest that is found in Jesus. God, we pray that for each of us in here, that we would just be able to rest knowing that, God, you hold us in your hands. God, we're, we're your children. You love us and you care for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.